Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What was the winner? I don't remember. You just will have to listen to our interview with Tom Hopper, I guess. This has all been an ad for Fathom's Deep. <laughs> an ad for Fathom's Deep slash Tom Hopper. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And we are back with Daphne Olive, post-finale and and post-season two announcement. Hello, Daphne. Congratulations. Hey, <laughs> thank you. We are very, very happy. We are very, very happy. I know. <laughs> there. That's what I love. We can all be happy together. Yeah. It's wonderful. I can only imagine all of the ways you all are going to do some very cool things with Sea of Monsters. So I am very excited. Thank you for continuing to make this show uh, that we love very much. It is my pleasure. I love it. I'm very, very lucky that I get to keep doing this. So last time we talked through episodes one through five, this time we can talk the whole the whole thing the whole season because I I mean the things you're doing in the second half of the season I I can't get over it I, I can't wait to rewatch the season in full now that we have it all I I can't wait to watch it like a like a binge watcher I've I've never been one of those but I'm excited to watch it like that yeah I do think binge watching the show hits a bit different because when you get it all together you can really feel like the way the story works. And uh, like the forward momentum of the story, I feel like it's just really like you really see all the pieces and the dots all connecting and like stacking up on each other that way. Yay. 
<laughs> yeah, I love I love to binge in a rewatch. Like I love in yeah. a first watch it, when I can manage it to not do that. And then the binge rewatch is is fun that way. Yes, I'm exactly the same. Um, so do you want to start Phoebe with? Yeah, so I, we just thinking back on the season came up with like a whole bunch of topics that we're interested in covering. Um, a lot of them are, are mostly just characters. I I feel like the easy place to start is probably Percy. I, I have to say, and I think you probably already know this, that how exactly to bring Percy to the screen when he is so in his own head in the books was something that I thought a lot about before the show came out <laughs> because I there's a lot going on with that kid. He's really, he's messy. He's a little complicated. And I really appreciate just how much of that is making it to the screen. And I think part of that is obviously Walker blowing me away every time. A huge part of it is Walker. He's, yeah. he's just, he's, I, I, I haven't worked on a lot of television shows, but I think there are few people who are as lucky as we have been with him as the lead. It's really incredible. He is tr- truly stunning. He, he, it's mind blowing every time. But I, I think it's also that the journey that you've taken Percy on in this season. So I kind of just want to talk about the story that you have brought out here because I we get to see him working through a lot of things through grief, through feeling alone, through trying to understand who he is or trying to fit um and you know none of it is a straight line it's about as it's as complicated as i i feel that uh, it should be <laughs> um and so much of it isn't done by the end of the season either you know you've set him up for the next couple seasons really beautifully i think and so uh the question in all of this is kind of just how did you conceptualize his story going throughout this season I, this is more a topic than a question really Sure. No, I mean, I can I can speak to that. Um, the fact that it feels unfinished is great because we definitely did all talk about him. Like, there's this thing where you have to kind of keep in mind, right, where he's going to end at the mm-hmm. end of the book series slash TV series, right? And you have to think about, like, what's the first fifth of that, basically? Like, what's the first stage of that? And <laughs> it's funny, I was going to make a joke, but not remembering the exact line about the black sales episode which everyone is talking about now um, about keeping <laughs> your eye on two things at one time uh, uh-huh. <laughs> i used to be able to quote black sales perfectly i years beyond that but it's fun to be able to have to think in both of those terms at the same time like because you don't want to just get like so so focused on this one season that you forget where he's going so you want to like embed things that you know, like when you reread, like let's say when you're rereading books and you'll see something earlier in the books or earlier in a TV show and you'll say, oh, that was, you know, foreshadowing of something that you love from the end of this of that story. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't because sometimes the author figures that stuff out while they go. But I think I talked about this last time, like we have this benefit of having the whole book series ready for us. So so we could be a little bit intentional about that. Like if this is where he's going, these are kind of the most important qualities of the fifth book percy we could try to intentionally both look at what his first part of the story is but like with always a mind to like what is the the deepest truths about him that you wouldn't that you would understand after the whole series and ideally to try to thread those through and make them relevant here and you know we had this whole thing about his humanity which i think we talked about last time of just like 
this idea that was was felt very resonant to all of us of this kind of radical humanity and and how that is essential to who he is throughout the series even when he becomes more and more immersed in the mythological world and just kind of trying to keep an eye on how that affects him in this season him and annabeth in particular how they learn from each other you know this idea that the two of them each of them embody slash are more likely to embrace the side of themselves that the other one doesn't so much mm -hmm. and so that mm -hmm. that is how uh how they learn from each other which ultimately whether this is a friendship or or a romantic pairing in the future um you know ideally people bond over the ways that they help each other be uh, a more integrated version of themselves this is sort of flashing me back to uh, the conversation that we had at the beginning of our episode eight deep dive about Percy's perception of himself um, because mm. he gives that sort of who I am threat. I'm so curious to see how that like idea of who I am develops over the seasons. Well, right. And it's a, it's a season that started with him asserting I'm, I'm Sally Jackson's son. Mm -hmm. So it's just like mm. he, I hadn't really thought about those two parts together until just now but like that it's interesting that show percy ended up being someone who makes declarations about identity yeah because i wouldn't i wouldn't exactly call him the most um introspective person in the books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would posit that not only introspective people are the ones who declare what they are that's true that's it. <laughs> those two things can be linked not always <laughs> While we're talking about Percy, I have a note here in my notes that's just Theseus question mark. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> would love to hear your perspective on what you've said on, I don't think you've said it on our podcast, but on several other podcasts now um, about Percy being a Theseus rather than a Perseus. Oh, okay, great. Well, I mean, the most obvious reason, the reason why it's funny, the first time I read this book, the first thing I did was like, I, I think I probably texted John. I was like, wait, his name is Perseus, but he's a son of Poseidon? <laughs> so like, that's the, the, the most basic level. Then you watch him fight the Minotaur, too. <laughs> right. No, of course. Like, he, right, right. It's just like this whole thing is just a giant goulash of different myths thrown together and that's what's so fun about it but it's not just that so like I have to make the caveat that the version of Theseus that is always most resonant to me is from the book The King Must Die there are aspects of that Theseus that feel very much Percy Jackson to me one is he questions he is a Theseus like the so the book is really interesting because it it you could read that whole book believing that the gods are real and that there are supernatural powers and you could read that whole book and every bit of it feels like it's based in the mundane world like both mm. things could be totally true at the same time in that book and it's one of the things i love about it and that theseus questions all the time like it's not it's there's just a huge thing about what it means to be the son of poseidon but even bigger I think for him is what does it mean to be a leader like it's a book that really mm. has that as its primary question throughout of like what is a leader what is a leader owed to their people and he you know he's Theseus so he's definitely gonna like think about glory and such but the 
thing that makes me most interested in that Theseus is that his leadership was one of raising other people up. So like his, mm -hmm. his, the whole thing about when they are bull dancers, like this idea that like his troop, all of them survived because he actually taught them to work together. You know, that he didn't see himself as above them. Like the minute they arrived there, that he he chose to be one of them, not their king mm. or their prince. Um, and just there's just all these things just that are hard for me to completely articulate, but just feel really essential to how he like weirdly maps with Percy Jackson. Um, I know for a fact that Rick did not read ever read that book because I gave it to him as a gift. <laughs> but we did talk about it. Um, John Steinberg did read that book. And that's just the weirdest coincidence that happened while I was a podcaster that I found out that this that this book that was so kind of essential to my understanding of heroism and fate and all of this happened to be a book that John also had read that I like I felt it was a book that I would bring it up and pretty much no one had ever read it. So it was really weird that finally somebody <laughs> was like, oh yeah, I totally read that book and it meant a lot. To me. <laughs> um, which is not to say that that Theseus, you know, had too much influence on this show. It just was this interesting thing for me personally that, that it, he, that that Theseus felt so aligned for me mm. with kind of what I see as the essential nature of Percy's heroism. Hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting, because, like, historically, Theseus is sort of regarded as, like, I think, the third great king of Athens. Yeah. Um, and, like, a lot of the old historians tried to figure, it's kind of like people who are like, when did, when did the Garden of Eden happen? Where they're like, let me, let me set a date to this. There are a lot of ancient Greek historians that were like, when did Theseus reign? Although it's also interesting, because I'm thinking about it, too, like, I feel like what, in the past, though, their conception of what a good leader would be, would be be pretty different though than yeah. I think like Mary Renault's take. Is it right. Renault? Renault? Yeah. I think it's Renault, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Yes. I mean it's very much her her version of him. I've actually I've never read her Alexander the Great books and I've always meant to and I kind of feel like oh. I need to. Yeah. Oh, I kinda want to. Alexander the Great is one of the most fascinating characters in history to me. He's just I mean he's the worst. <laughs> but in a very interesting way. <laughs> She's she's an expert at that, I feel like. That's like that is <laughs> that is her happy place. But you know, it's funny, you asked me before we started what my reading list and is is an actually in my pile of half read books because all I do is read for work and not I don't ever finish books. I used to be such a reader before I be, <laughs> before I became a television writer. Um, is is actually the second book because it's her her um, oh the the bull from the sea the bull from the sea which I have read but not as many times and I haven't read it in a very long time so I decided mm -hmm. I should read that so you know I just felt like to read read the second book was just like was gonna just kind of get my mind back in a fate place again because I just feel like that's because her her Theseus story is has such an interesting way of uh, looking at fate. It's funny when I think of Theseus, like the Theseus parallels in Percy's life, I'm always thinking about like the way that Theseus approaches challenges. And like, it's partially that what you said, but in my head, it's also partially the way that he kind of thinks through things and like twists things on because like most of the, the monsters or people that he encounters that he has to fight, he kind of thinks his way around them or like uses their own tricks against them in fun ways, which I mean, that's also very much a Percy thing. <laughs> that is, that's interesting. 
I love that. Yeah. I also, I mean, we're talking about this mostly in, in terms of The King Must Die, but my brain is also questioning whether, because Percy has now learned the myths from Sally, wondering if he sees the parallels in his own life <laughs> to Theseus. Like, would he ever put together that he might be a Theseus, or is he too resistant to thinking of himself in terms of story? to do that. <laughs> That's funny, right? It's true, right? Because he does talk about himself in terms of other heroes. I don't think he's ever compared himself to Theseus, which is no. funny. Even in the natural book in Battle of the Labyrinth, when you'd think he'd be thinking right. of Theseus, he's thinking of Daedalus the whole time. <laughs> I know, it's so true. All right, well, if I'm on season four, I might have to like create some Easter eggs for myself in season four. <laughs> They all live in the Luke camp. <laughs> Luke thinks that he's a Theseus in that book, and he's so, he's yeah. wrong. It's <laughs> so true. Aw. Luke's just, yeah, I just love him, and he's just wrong a lot of the time. It's just so sad. Um, the answer to this might be uh, no, but I'm curious, since you do have this sort of, like, Percy as Theseus idea in your head, is there any other parallels between character Greek hero in your head? That's a good question. Um, I mean, and this one, just just to be clear, this one is like just a loose, like this is how my brain works thing. It's not like yeah. I'm like trying to map the story to Theseus or the King Must Die. Um, huh. I guess the answer is no, but like not a hard no. Like with season one, I kind of felt like when things started to feel like they were part of the story, but weren't in the book, but were from Greek. It's like, it wasn't like mapped out. Like, oh, I want to draw from this. Mm. I want to draw from this. Like usually what happened was that we would have conversations in the room and it felt like this is where the emotional story was going. And then I would go and like look for stuff. So like a big example that we talked about before was like the whole, you know, the Hephaestus and Aries stuff, like just like mm. it just started to feel so, so relevant to me, like that their stories were stories that could be reinterpreted as siblings who are competitive because they don't get enough recognition from their parent. Right. So like, so it's really, um, it's less like that I have like matches like that in my head so much as like where the story takes me. I start like mining um, mm -hmm. mythology and other stuff to 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 augment uh, what we think is happening in the Percy Jackson story. I think that's the fun thing with Greek mythology is there's you can find every shade of humanity in there. So you can kind of like best buffet yeah. ever. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then within the topic of parallels, if we want to switch slightly away from mythology, I will be back, though. We'll be we'll be back oh, with yeah. mythology. Oh. <laughs> I've been thinking a whole lot about since finishing the season, but also throughout the season about how strongly you're all leaning into Percy and Luke as foils for each other. I mean, that's something that we really get toward the end of the the book series but I love that it's being laid out so clearly here at the beginning with like the May and Sally parallel and Percy's attitude toward the gods in the first half of the season and like how many of Percy's lines could so easily come out of Luke's mouth yeah I mean it's it was I think for all of us I know I can speak for myself like it just felt like one you know the smart choice right because we do know the end game and it is about you know, it's a prophecy about two people. And yep. those are the two. Um, so, and, and that they are like, that the whole confusion about the prophecy is the fact that the person everyone assumed was Percy was actually Luke. 
mm-hmm. which is I think one of my favorite that's one of my favorite twists ever honestly um yeah so I was just good. It yeah, was so good. <laughs> it's so good I know and it's just like and so perfect I mean I think I talked about this before but like it's just so perfect that this like concept of the quote-unquote hero which is you know which is glory speak right like being the hero um and the idea that 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 was not the same as the child you know of the big three because percy's never tried to be the hero really but luke has and it's just Mm -hmm. like it was just one of those things where it completely surprises you and also the minute you find it out you're like oh this is both completely surprising and of course this yeah the most sense in Mm -hmm. the world um so so it's just like how could this not i mean i'm not saying they're the only two important characters obviously but you know within this story that has so many directions and so many interesting characters and so many different conversations about life family glory whatever the fact that these two are entwined with each other in fate means that they are entwined with each other in story mm-hmm. the way you phrase that too just kind of made me go wait a minute <laughs> also because what you just said about how luke wants to be the hero i was i'm just like wait oh so but he and he is in the <laughs> he is no that's, that's the crazy part is that he dies a tragic death but he also gets the thing on some level that he wanted most in the world yeah. which is part of why it's so beautiful like my favorite stories are ones that are break your heart and are beautiful and satisfying at the same time and that is an ending that does that so you know I'm to be perfectly honest you know kind of obsessed with that throughout like I'm kind of never not thinking about that I think anyone who's been in a writer's room with me would agree (laughs) I'm I'm never not thinking about the great prophecy and the and Mm. and the end yeah it's I mean you can't be blinded to the task at hand when you're thinking about that but some part of my brain is always thinking about that part because it's so beautiful and so satisfying and such good structure and so like the the more that we can be aware of that slash point at it the better as far as I'm concerned because that'll just make you know I just I, I I I love to think both about the book fans who will have you know may, maybe even new experiences of it through the way we're doing it but also the people who haven't read the books that they don't know where this is going, but they're just going to start feeling all the feelings about these two. So that when we get there, mm-hmm. hopefully it'll really, you know, mm-hmm. just, I just want everyone to feel as, feel as many interesting feelings about that ending as I do. So that's, that's, that's my goal. I think another thing that we've talked about a lot is the link between prophecy and fate and choice and how in at least in the books in our interpretation there's a lot of wiggle room with the prophecies over like how exactly they come true so like the fact that luke is still like choosing to be the hero and that is the prophecy is like oh of course he would because uh there's the one short story that that you should read (laughs) (laughs) uh the diary of luke castellan i i am actually reading it right now (gasps) oh because you know relevance i don't know mm-hmm. uh-huh. i'll say no more but that doesn't, don't don't read more into that than you but yeah i am reading it right now uh 
I mean, I feel like that wouldn't be surprising to anyone who knows I'm working no. on season two and I'm reading that yeah. story. No, like, no, that, no. that shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, we've been theorizing a lot about like when we think things are going to come up in the show, which obviously I know you can't speak to, but uh, it's been I mean, fun to be like, ooh. <laughs> we're, we're so early in the process, it's not even hard for me not to speak about them because I can't, I mean, literally don't know them yet. <laughs> <There's>, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're in early, early days of breaking the story of season two. One thing I thought was really interesting uh, also was that Luke's sort of speech at the end of episode eight, um, the main focus of it was on the familial aspect of it, which makes a lot of sense because that's sort of the themes that the show has been building up like a ton. Um, But then the other thing that really struck me was how he still talks about the golden age, Mm -hmm. because something that we talk about a lot is how Luke has a fixation on the past And that's sort of also his doom in a way. And I was thinking about it too, just because I feel like we're seeing so much more of the past in the show as well. So I was just, I'm curious how, like how much does it come up, Luke's relationship with the past and all of that when you're talking about his character? Uh, I I can't say that I've ever been in a conversation that talks about quite the way you just did, which is really a really interesting way to look at him. But the same thing that, you know, I, I and I think everyone who's been interviewed in any way about the show talks about is like, we have to be thinking about the interiority of characters other than Percy, right? Because all, all we had in the first five books is his interiority. So the same thing is true about time. So bringing Hermes into episode six, like that, yes, that's obviously great. You know, that's a foreshadowing, bringing Luke's story forward you know but part of it is like all of those other things were happening simultaneously i mean not necessarily hermes in the lotus casino but like but all of these other stories were happening during the story that we know and so things that we only learn in later books when you're doing an adaptation are true from the first book they're true all the time for the character luke in whose head we also find ourselves during the show his past all of that exists for him even if we haven't learned it yet in the books this early or even in the show this early but it's all true for him um but now to bring this back to this to your idea that he is a person who who is more focused on the past that's a really interesting way to look at him or people like him like he is a person who is shaped let's say by his own past, right? Like he's, I mean, we all are, but the harder the childhood, the more likely you are to uh, have the past be present in your experience of the world every minute. Like the easier the childhood, the easier it is also to just like move forward. So that feels, um, that feels like it makes a lot of sense for me, for him. Um, Another thing about golden age I mean, this is often also a situation with children who have a hard time with their relationships with their parents, but maybe it's very easy to then project that life would be easier with, let's say, a grandparent or or someone else's parent, right? Like, this is a thing that happens. And um, that has always felt to me like part of his, his feelings about, about the golden age. It's just like, it was a time when there were no demigods, right? because there were no olympians so so it's easy to project anything onto a time Mm. that you know nothing about or a grandparent (laughs) 
who you can just you know you can you know you can just tell yourself yeah i'm sure it'd be better with him than with my not great dad um so i just feel like a lot of that is um it feels very true for people who just really have had such a rough time of it that it's hard to just to move on and it's hard to imagine that the world you're in is the best version of what Mm. there could be the whole thing with the five ages in Hesiod as well as I feel like that's sort of the idea of it like oh well we're in the worst one obviously the farther back you go the better it gets obviously you know I think that is just human nature to some (laughs) extent (laughs) (laughs) yeah I do I I, something else uh, that I also thought was really interesting because you mentioned there's no demigods in the golden age and there's no glory either it's very explicitly like the glory comes later that's what was good about like I think it was the the Bronze Age, the Age of Heroes and stuff. That was what was good about the Age of Heroes. Um, so it's interesting. It was also, I found it really interesting that Luke's like thinking about a past that like doesn't have a, a place for him and what he actually wants. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if there's one thing that defines Luke and is part of his tragic story is I don't know if he's good at figuring out what he wants. Mm-hmm. I think he's very good at figuring out what he wants to be against. I do believe that he does want good things for demigods. Like I do deeply believe that about him, but that he is, that he wants to do good for his cohort, for his, but I don't think, that's just my impression of him. It's just like that he's, that's like, he's much more defines himself in terms of what he's against than what he is for. Agree with that. It feels vaguely related to uh, our conversation again about episode eight when we were talking about how he tries to run away so often uh, because he gets to a pl- he he runs to a place thinks this is where it'll be better and then it's obviously not what he wants and he runs again. I mean, I think I, I also like I'm very excited someday to be able to think about scenes with him and Thalia, but um, mm. but you know. Also, my understanding of him has always been like that he thought she was the one who got him, who like who under who felt the same way, who understood yeah. him mm. in a way that I think no one else could, because I think I mean, again, a lot of that is probably projection. And, you know, that's a di- whole different discussion that we can have mm. you yep. know, at some point, <laughs> maybe hopefully if we have a season three and all of that. But um, I just, you know. He's just he just makes me sad. I just want to take care of that poor boy, even though he does awful things. But yeah, it's just uh, you're right. I mean, and that's what they were doing, right? I mean, that's literally what they did for years was run away together, but run away. I think one thing Phoebe and I talked about a lot was that aspect where they're the two, as far as like their mortal parents, they have the least stable backgrounds that were yeah. introduced to. Yeah, I mean, they both had version of brokenhearted mothers. Yeah, different versions of that, but yeah, that also sort of leads me into my Hermes question. <laughs> Speaking of Luke's parents, because I did want to ask, because I was so curious about at what point in the process you sort of knew you all wanted to bring in Hermes to season one. That's a really good question. Uh, I don't remember. I mean, to be perfectly honest, that was so long ago. I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I don't feel like it was a. Uh, hard decision like I don't remember a lot of debate around it but I don't remember exactly how that conversation went either but it just felt right I will say I loved this depiction of Hermes just fascinating fascinating man (laughs) I I 
like I yeah it was just so much fun to see where these actors took these characters like it just like it's one thing you know to have these ideas and then you know be part of the process of writing them but it's just like <laughs> like but it's just like I don't know if I could have asked for a better Hermes and a better Hades than I and I love both of those I'm just like it's just so amazing to me that <laughs> it's a, it was a delight that's so interesting though that that's because I feel like the, the Hermes we see in season one is a very different Hermes to the Hermes we see especially in Sea of Monsters in book two but mm -hmm. I think even later but I also feel like this Hermes matches up a lot more like way later in Trials of Apollo we had Apollo talking oh, about Hermes interesting Apollo talks about Hermes as being a lot more volatile Mm -hmm. a lot more fickle than the version we see of him through Percy's eyes in the books. So I thought that was really interesting where I was like, oh, this this does kind of... But I, I, I also see shades of this version of Hermes in like the later books, Hermes, especially when he's like threatening Annabeth and stuff. I was like, I can so see uh, that sure, happening yeah. with this mm -hmm. guy. <laughs> right. And that's just like, you know, there's a lot of assumptions also. Like, so if you take the story of him and May, right? And you extrapolate that. Like, if I was Hermes, I would feel like he loved her enough to be with them when Luke was a baby. So, like, that's a data point, right? You take that data point. Mm -hmm. He took her to camp. Like, just all of these things, like, it's just a lot of book five stuff. But, like, if you take these data points about his choices, not necessarily his depiction, but his choices that you have to... You know, this is the same thing we had to do with Sally. It's just like you take data points and then you have to build a person. I mean, again, not a person, my God, but whatever, a character, a full, a fully fledged character out of the data points you have, which is, which has to include all of the books and the voice and, you know, but also these like choices that even if you hear them third hand or, you know, through a, a memory or whatever, like they have to be part, they have to make sense as part of this person. And so I feel like that's kind of my experience of him is just like a person who's haunted by his choices, but also tries very hard not to look that way. Mm -hmm. That was part of why I, I enjoyed him being in the Lotus Casino specifically so much was that I was like, he, he is in a way trapped in the same place too, <laughs> refusing exactly. to look. Exactly. And it just, yeah, it's just like the place where like nobody has memories. So like you can just kind of like, even if you do, you can still kind of like maybe momentarily kind of live in a stasis a comfortable, you know, a pleasant stasis. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense considering when Percy comes in and forces him to remember because he brings up Luke, why he reacts the way he does. Right. It's just like, can you imagine, you know, the, I mean, I hope to never have to imagine like the guilt of a parent who's ruined their child's life but which again that's kind of all of the gods but like mm -hmm. i think that the books show us that like despite however he talks like he has a conscience he cares yeah and i think hermes is the one in the books as well that really like dwell has to dwell on it with all of the prophecy stuff because of all of the things we learn in book five about what he knows so yeah that's the thing so yeah that was that's one of my what well, was one of my big questions um is like how much did may see and what does he know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. 
right? So I, I don't I don't have an answer for that. Um, yeah. but I think it's a it's a it's a good question to have in mind. I also found it interesting because I feel like there is that connection too of Hermes and the underworld. So also that piece mm-hmm. of his sort of duty as a god is having to bring everyone down. You know, again, like he mentions, like I I bring people down people that want to that go in thinking they're about to save their loved ones and every single time what happens so like that kind of i really enjoyed in that his he brings that up as like a part of that whole moment as well yeah i mean that's one of my favorite aspects of of hermes is like not the gigantic list of things he's the god of but but like the fact that he is the one that connects worlds that aren't connected like he connects yeah. the human world and the godly world. He connects the living world and Hades. Like that's, I, I mean, I think if, you know, even if you didn't know anything else about his story, the fact that he is the God, the only God, I think, whose actual job is to be connected to humans would yeah. already put him in a different orientation about his own demigod children. Yeah. Uh, that being said, though, I do also want to talk about the underworld. Sure. That's that's my favorite design. I have like I, they <laughs> they they gave me concept art from from Hades because I was just like, like I was just so enthused the whole time. I was just yeah, isn't it beautiful? Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> it's also very very interesting to me <laughs> because my question is, and this might not be a writing question, so I'm not I don't I don't know. You're, but, gonna, um, you're gonna ask me Dan Henna questions, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to answer them. <laughs> I, well, there's one part that I know was a writing question, but another part I'm curious about. So I, okay. I don't know. But um, so I wanted to ask because um, in Greek mythology, there's usually two kind of versions of the fields of asphodel that you see. There's the one that's like a field of white ash, which I do see in the show. I see the I see the white ash sort of there. So there's that but also there's sort of a field of the asphodel flowers which are sort of like the roadside weed in greece but in also in the show the specific fields of asphodel which in mythology are like just where people go just you know who haven't been particularly good or particularly evil in this version not only are there trees but specifically the idea of its connection with regret also really intrigued me like there's more to it than just like this is the field where people just go when they're dead unless the idea is like everybody has regrets of course so i was just so curious like what went into that decision there's so many things that i could that i actually do remember how they came about and i feel like each one you're asking me about today are ones i don't (laughs) this is one of the ones i don't i mean what i remember more globally about episode seven is that choosing how to depict this part of the story was very challenging and fun but it was challenging because you know we're getting almost to the end of the series so there's like a lot of stuff that we kind of like we had created that needed to start getting wrapped up also uh there's just a lot of parts of that part of the book that was just like wouldn't have been good episode structure because it was like and then this and then this and then this and then this which is not a criticism of the book that's just just didn't want it didn't want to translate as seamlessly as some of the other portions of the story that became episodes the the thing the design thing that i remember that we really um that was really a big part of the conversations about it early on was this the idea that hades had built an inverted 
version yeah. of yeah. Olympus. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. It was so good. I also, it felt, I loved how, to me at least, it felt very like this was here. And then he kind of had to just put a rug in the corner and be like, okay, I'm going to make my own space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that too. Yeah, I had nothing. I had. No, I, I mean, I, I probably listened to some of those conversations about the design of his, whatever, his sitting room that he created for himself. But there's something kind of wonderful about that. But it it goes with the character. I feel like that, you know, you would you would see all of this as so grand and imposing, and you're assuming that he is the one who stole the bolt, and that he's trying to like he's this big mastermind. And he's like, no, I'm just a dude. Like I'm just a guy <laughs> trying to enjoy my sitting room, get my helm back. Like it's just it just felt so appropriate that he would create this like comfy space within this grand or space that is not really him so much yeah it was such a funny shift to me because in the book it's like here's this imposing god like the first god that percy thinks actually reads as a god to him yeah and then shifting it to like from the moment you see him he's just this speck <laughs> walking in but i feel like the part of the book that we latched onto is like there is a point in the book where he's just like i'm overwhelmed with dead people I don't need like he's just like he's just a it's like everyone else is like fighting and thinking about glory and stuff and like he just felt like the one god who was like actually had a day job and had a lot to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just like it's like everyone else like has the time to be like petty about stuff and he's just like I just have a lot on my mind right now there's all these dead people and then like that I think is really I remember us talking about that like that he he just it's not just that he doesn't have a place on Olympus and all of this other stuff, all the stuff that people focus on about him, that he would be that he would be jealous and angry and feel left out and it's like no I'm just busy just a little overwhelmed by my job mm -hmm. it just felt so right for him yeah. like to to both invert the expectations of Hades more generally but also about like in this situation where there's a misunderstanding about who who's who's running the running this this lightning bolt stealing operation <laughs> yeah it's like particularly important here because everyone's going to assume that he must be like his family that he's one of the big three you know, he's Hades and they robbed him of his spot on Olympus. Right. I mean, in all of it, it's like, I mean, you know, to get back into the five book thing, it's just like they made a pact and he was the only one who didn't break it. Mm -hmm. Zeus demanded yeah. his already living children. Like, it's just, sorry. Yeah. Big Hades defender here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, understandable. When I was a dramaturg on uh, Disney's Hercules, the stage adaptation of Hercules, uh, this was a big conversation that we had about Hades because it was like, like this feel like I feel like is always the question of like, what does Hades want in all of this? Like, is Hades happy where he is? Why does he do the things that he does? Does he resent his brothers? And the answer for most versions of Hades is of course he resents his brothers of course he wants power <laughs> and I just love that Percy Jackson is like no <laughs> right right it, it's just it's so delightful that we have a story about Greek mythology and the Olympians that is like the most ultimately like the deep down message of all of it is like power is bad and you shouldn't want it <laughs> like, <I feel> like... <laughs> <laughs> which just goes against every other depiction of Greek mythology stuff, really, that I can imagine. Um, should we switch gears slightly? 
because I do want to talk a little bit about Sea of Monsters as much as you can talk about Sea of Monsters. Sure. Um, because I have a, a real soft spot for it. Me too! Because to me, it's a real character and relationship builder of a book. I love Sea of Monsters. I, I yeah. feel like it is underrated. Good. Say more. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Because I'd, I'm just curious, what are the things that you like about it? You know, just generally character storylines, moments you're partial to. Uh, okay. Uh, disclaimer, this has nothing to do with what you may or may end up seeing in the show. I am one of, one of multiple writers and not a showrunner. So, you know, I give input into what happens in a season of television. I am not the decider of those things. Um... I love dualities and Sea of Monsters is full of dualities. Um, I also love, I mean, not to say it's a simple book or a simple story, but I do think that there is some extent to which it has more kind of thematic simplicity than other ones, which allows you to really kind of focus in. Um, I love that it is a very dynamic exploration of how Percy and Annabeth are learning to be friends with each other um, mm -hmm. even in the context I think of our season one of the television show which I feel like um, maybe brought them a little farther in that process than the first book did but I still think there's a lot of room in in from Sea of Monsters to to explore that I love the sirens I yes. love I mean I love all of the challenges honestly I think they're all really interesting and I feel like they're all about identity in ways that are really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, did we, did we have this conversation about bookended by two cyclopses? I don't yeah. really know how to <laughs> Yes, we did have this conversation. Um, but yes, <laughs> yeah, still, still not sure. But, um, <laughs> but um, I think that they like, again, to say, to speak to duality, like, I just think that this, this that book just really is just a giant exploration of how to take the story from the first book and and frame it in dualities that is always a fun way to look at human nature and story and yeah I, f I feel like I remember us talking about dualities in that book it's been so long since I I've edited episode two of our podcast <laughs> but, <laughs> but I I do remember talking about like you know, going through the quest process again, but, you know, oh, it's over here with Clarice now and like going through and seeing, you know, Clarice in the Percy role. Um. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Uh, and I just think it's a beautiful story. Um, and I know I, I'm not sure why it's most people's least favorite of the books, um, but I love it very much. Yeah, I it must be like it's not as big story plot driven that it's its own sort of contained thing but it is when so many things get introduced like the the coffin and the great prophecy and like all of this stuff to finally is brought up so exactly yeah i feel like it has the disadvantage of being one of the earlier ones without the advantage of being the first one ah uh. that is that's that's a that's probably the best way to understand how people rank it lower that that makes a lot of sense like, you just like all the big stuff has to happen towards the end so you're you know right titan's curse is where the big story really kind of kicks in i feel mm -hmm. like so that might be yeah that that aligns with what you're saying is that the first two books feel like their own contained stories more and 
starting with Titan's Curse, it really feels like you're part of this big story. Yeah. And Titan's Curse is like the tone shift too and like where things get kicked up a notch a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And like this, you know, just su- suddenly having multiple children of the big three is, you know, is a big deal and all of that stuff. Whereas here it still feels like it's going to be Percy no matter what. And it's, I, I have so many things I'm so excited to see. Um, my, my, my joke one to Phoebe is I can't wait for Cersei's monologue. Uh, <laughs> don't know what it'll be. Don't know if it'll exist. But if it does, I'm excited. Yes, I'm in the beautiful space where I can't really speak to any of it because we really are early yeah. days. Oh, yeah. That's not a question or that's just that's just a bit. <laughs> my other question is, will the Queen Anne's Revenge be making an appearance? <laughs> Will the hurdy-gurdy play when we get on the... (laughs) You will, yes, you will get some sort of answer when you watch season two, whenever that's going to (laughs) be. I don't know. Oh, wait, did I tell, did I tell you the, did I tell you last time the Black Sails Easter eggs in season one? I think while we weren't recording, but (laughs) you can put them on the record now. (laughs) Sorry, as like... I just like to put Easter eggs for myself in, in when I when anyone will agree to do that. <laughs> so so Old Man Season One has uh has some that are not mine, uh that are just John Steinberg writing style, but there is one that is mine. Um and uh, Percy Jackson has two. One is Augustus, um is uh named after Augustus Featherstone, which is one of my favorite characters in Black Sails. Anyone listening should watch Black Sails. You will also <laughs> fall, fall in love with Featherstone. And the other... Oh, no. Again, I forgot the name. I was um, about to say, I'm going to forget the name again, I'm going to forget the name again. I'm going to forget the name again. Um, it starts with an M. Uh, right. Manderley. Manderley Academy, yes. <laughs> which is where young Percy goes in the flashbacks, is named after Billy Bones Manderley. That's and it. now let's analyze that. What does it mean? <laughs> it means that I convinced Joe and <laughs> I convinced both Joe and Andrew to use names that I gave them. <laughs> well, I think what it means is Percy, young Percy, he's, you know, he's at a book character. He's at a, hold on. I should have come up with a better one for this bit. Uh, do I it, had a thought. Do it, Emily. Weave some meaning into random shit. I love it. <laughs> Please. Percy, when he's young, when he doesn't understand yet that he's part of a story, is also going to school at a place of a character who doesn't understand yet that he's part of a story that he will be the writer of on the TV show Black Sail. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Percy is Billy. <laughs> okay. Actually, Percy is Billy is actually not bad like percy really is silver but like percy is billy (laughs) early percy is billy i buy it i like that very much i feel like this is a good time for people who have not seen black sales to log off (laughs) and for us to transition into talking about black sales bye people who haven't watched black sales watch black sales you really should just watch black sales (laughs) it's really good and then you should listen to Daphne podcast about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have a podcast about it. Fathoms Deep. That is my podcast that I'm doing a very bad job of pro- promoting on other people's <laughs> podcasts. Okay. So I I feel like my opinions on this are, are pretty well established and out there. Um, but I'm curious what connections you see between these stories. You've already said in this episode that Percy is a silver. 
Yeah, Maybe that's just that's me. Where we start with your YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he isn't isn't a silver. Um, wait, is that your question? Why do I think he's a silver? Like, I mean, that's why? sort of the, the first. Phoebe, one. <laughs> Phoebe, saying, Daphne, tell me, tell me, tell me how correct I was. Tell in me, my I'm YouTube right. Video. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I want to know how hard you laughed when you saw Phoebe's video essay now that we... Oh, my God. I was... <laughs> okay, first of all, for anyone who hasn't watched Phoebe's video, you should watch it. But also, you have to watch it, watch it, which I usually just treat YouTube videos as, like, that are story analysis as podcasts. But you cannot do that because some of the funniest parts of it are stuff that Phoebe just, like, flashes a sentence on the screen for a second, and you have to really pay attention. Uh, secondly, yes, I felt extremely called out in the nicest way, but I did not expect it to be so much about my podcast. That was hilarious. Um, uh, also, yeah, it was great. I mean, I've, I've showed it to people, which is a little embarrassing because it feels like it's very much about me. So I like, I'm like, okay, I'm not showing this to you because I'm quoted so much. This is because it's really great analysis. Thank you. (laughs) It's awesome. You know, I love it. Um, the the reason why the thing that is feels most aligned to me in Percy and Silver is that they like yes reluctant hero is a trope is a archetype whatever but these two have a very similar version I think of reluctant hero in that they crave belonging but pretend not pretend but like don't like that's a type of vulnerability that I think neither of them are comfortable with in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and I think that their need for belonging is what makes them into a leader, but it happens gradually, and they're never completely comfortable with it. That last part, I think they deal with very differently. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. which is where Silver and Percy diverge, but I think that they share everything I said up until that point. And it's just how they how they deal with their discomfort of leadership is is the place where they're so different, mm-hmm. which is why um, uh, Percy, I think, gets a happier story and doesn't end up alone at the end of his story. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a big difference between them. Silver ends yeah. up very, very low. Does this make Annabeth Flint? Uh, no, Lucas Flint. <laughs> Lucas Flint. Lucas Flint. Oh, yes, Phoebe is correct on that as well. Luke is absolutely. That's actually, that parallel is, it feels to me like the much stronger, easier to see parallel yeah. because they're both people who have a lot of anger and wants, like some part of them very much wants to do good in the world. And some part of them is so angry that it makes them make choices that lead to bad not good yeah <laughs> thank you not a problem happy to come on your podcast to affirm affirm your, your yeah. <laughs> but are, i mean are there connections that are are exist in your head that aren't in my video essay or that you're like actually i would have done i would have connected it somewhere else or well, you did you did listen to my mythology podcast of fathoms deep where i did my whole thing about how silver is a theseus which is funny um and that all just worked out perfectly for me in my own analysis of a thing that john steinberg (laughs) didn't remotely intend to do in a conscious way um (laughs) um parallels i mean uh, in full disclosure 
a funny thing about who I work for slash with is that um, writers' rooms generally have shorthands. People use shorthands and they end up being other stories or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. A fun thing about this first season of The Old Band was that our me writing with the co-creators and ex other executive producer of Black Sales, and that being the entirety of the writer's room was that Black Sales was the best shorthand. Like we all, mm. we could shorthand like everything using Black Sales. Mm -hmm. um, this is not the case in the Percy Jackson room, although it does <laughs> still, it is still a thing with me and John of like, of sometimes we will talk about characters in the other stories and use uh, Black Tales characters as shorthand because it's just a really, or episodes or moments or whatever. But you do that with all sorts of stories. Like, I, I think it would be a really interesting study. I mean, writers' rooms are safe, closed spaces for a reason so that people can like really dig into their own emotions. Um, so you don't expose stuff that happens in, in writers' rooms, which is appropriate. But if that was not true, it'd be so interesting to me to learn which stories become shorthand in which writer's rooms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been fun for me every time, you know, I haven't been doing this for very long and I've not been many writer's rooms, but like when new people come in to learn their the stories that they will reference. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of my favorite things is then to watch them, even if I've watched them already. Like if, if, a, if a writer in the writer's room will reference a story enough time a movie tv shows a little harder but like if it's if it's a movie i will go watch them because i want to understand those other writers better so a great way to do that even if it's a movie i've watched many times is like to watch it with that the way the person was talking about it in mind is really fun mm -hmm. but yes yeah. but so black sales not mapping anything to it but it is a great shorthand yeah because i ha happen to you know, be someone who knows it very intimately and work with someone who knows it in a very different way, but also extremely intimately. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that, cause I, I, that's something I've talked about with my uh, writing group actually, is how we're all basically just an amalgamation of a few different reference stories in a trench coat. <laughs> pretty much pretty much everyone's is different but everyone it's funny though because you'll talk to people and be like oh don't you think that this thing i wrote is such a reference to like the i'm a, i'm a, and i'm totally ripping off these three things and they're like what are you talking about <laughs> exactly. i've seen those three things that's nothing like what you wrote right but it's your experience of it which is i think i don't know if there are better ways to understand a person than to understand their interpretation of a story that you both know well mm-hmm yeah Okay. Well, no, I think I'm just, I'm going to turn these tables. Now I'm okay. curious, like, <laughs> what other things stand out for you from season one of Percy Jackson and Black Sails more generally? If there were, if there were moments, if there were other things, I'm just curious now. And I'm not asking, I'm not, again, I'm not asking this as a quiz. Like, it's not yeah. a thing like, like, <laughs> oh, we seeded all of these things. And now I want to see if you all catch them. Like, I'm just <laughs> curious because, like, after all the things I just said about shorthand, it is also true or even more true that that writers like all people we have the things that occupy our minds and so they end up coming back and so i'm just curious i'm curious if there were any that feel connected to you right now the first thing that's coming to mind is like thematic stuff like like storytelling as a theme just in both 
um, and how you see yourself in relation to a story that you're a part of. I mean, this was a joke that I was making before the show even came out that like anytime the word story came up, I'd be like, ah, black sail writer, <laughs> black sales writer spotted. <laughs> but I mean, specifically, I, I specifically was thinking about it in like the first, I think it's just the first episode where it's just Percy saying over and over, like, I don't need some story to tell me that everything's going to be all right. Like I, he's not interested in looking at his life as like, this is all going to make sense someday. This is a story. And I was like, that is so silver coated of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think I feel like writers are very prone to think about the power of story, maybe more mm -hmm. than the average person, but that doesn't make it not relevant to the rest of the world. Um, yeah. It's something I'm thinking about constantly as a writer. <laughs> It's funny. <laughs> like, if you take the people who write stories, they're pre-programmed to think stories are powerful. And so they embed that concept in their stories. Yep. And then they watch the stories that do that. And they're like, whoa, that is so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that said, some people are better, uh, better at it than others. <laughs> but yes. I also feel like Black sales to me, like, there's a lot of work that is like, stories are powerful. And then they kind of, you know, they'll do a normal thing with that. They'll like right. do an expected thing with that. And I feel like Black sales does it in a way that I've never seen done before. That's what sucked me in. Yeah. I also was thinking a lot about Medusa when I was watching all of this, the monstrousness stuff, like with the shadows and the... Like, just what is a monster, I feel like, comes up in both, but in very different ways, but also in very similar ways. <laughs> right. I mean, it's fun because in Black Sails, the idea of a monster is something metaphorical. And in Percy Jackson, it becomes something that you're, it's an actual conversation, <laughs> which is really fun. Mm -hmm. And yet. <laughs> and still metaphorical because, metaphorical. <laughs> right, exactly, because that is, that is what mythology is for all of us, is a metaphorical way to examine our existence mm -hmm. in relation to medusa because she was on my screen i was also thinking of max and yeah. her story and how their stories are paralleled in some ways and yeah and then it was the the sword training i mean i i feel like you can't have both luke and flint on my screen both talking about what they think warfare is <laughs> and, <laughs> and in the same scenario and have me be like these aren't related <laughs> these aren't in conversation with each other at all <laughs> no yeah well i think it was our discussion that got me really thinking about the past too because of, because of of course of the the flint and the silver of it all of you have to know somebody's past to know them Phoebe brought that up, I should say. I should give credit where credit mm -hmm. is due. <laughs> but, uh, like, I feel like there's just an intimacy to the sword fighting that... True. Because the thing with the sword fighting as well is, like, I feel like you're in a dance and you're in a conversation and you can come back to it again and again and again in just, like, a really fun way. Like, even in our book analysis, we kept coming back to this disarming technique that Luke teaches Percy and how that's used throughout the series. But the idea of disarming is such an interesting thing because it's something that is a battle tactic, but also something we talk about people doing to each other, right? Like that you disarm mm. someone. And just as a black sales thing, like when um, Anne has her knife to Max's throat and then Max kisses her and Anne drops mm. the knife, like that's one of my favorite 
dual purpose disarming moments where it is literal a literal disarming and also a emotional disarming um so maybe maybe we could say that this is one of those things that uh occupies john's brain whether he <laughs> thinks about it consciously or not uh-huh. but um i di- i was not part of that decision for episode eight so I can't speak to the process of that. I, I know that John did a little bit in his episode with you. I got to experience that as a surprise too when I read the script. Where I was just like, "Look at that! What, what was that Look like where to we open are that suddenly. script and see that?" <laughs> I, I mean, it's funny. Like everything's fun for me in this process because you know, anytime anything that like I had any thoughts that feel like they contributed to something really cool is just like. That's so fun. So like I, you know, I have that throughout the season of just like things that just I know are very important to me about these stories. And that if, you know, even a sliver of them ended up in there, it's really fun. I am still, after all these years, just delighted for anything that feels Black Cells related to show up anywhere. And my very self-centered approach to all of this is that it all just feels like gifts presented to me <laughs> in exchange for my hard work i get i get all these fun things that feel like they're related to my favorite story so I, yeah it's just delightful for me the sh- that's a short version of saying that is just an absolute delight all the time i don't analyze things the way i did as a podcaster because like a big part of how i feel a big part of what i feel in my job is is to take whatever ends up in the scripts because I'm not the one who writes them. Sometimes I, you know, am there helping along the way, but to take whatever's the scripts and build from it. Like say, okay, Mm -hmm. so this is now, this is now the story. So like, how can I help take what is, you know, here and turn that into story going forward. So, so it's like, it's all a gift for me, especially if those things that are now like foundation or kind of something solid if it's stuff that i love and can really identify with and gets me you know just excited about the story then that just makes my job of trying to figure out how to weave new things from that or build off of it it's just all the more fun yeah i i i mean i too watching this feel like i've been given many gifts (laughs) but i i described the the show to Emily, I remembered um, Rowan Ellis on Fathom's Deep describing mm-hmm. Black Sails as being a show for dramaturgs. But this mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. even more like a show for dramaturgs <laughs> because I've seen the first draft and now I'm getting like all of these changes to it and getting to see the process of like what changes as you sort of go through it and uh, getting to see the story like shift before my eyes which is just one of many jobs of a dramaturg is to be a part of that sort of process of watching a story change and to discover different pieces of it as you go it's a good gig <laughs> yeah it just makes me it makes me so happy i i'm sure that there are people who are not in love with things we did but um i'm i'm happy that there are as many people uh, as there are who seem to feel gratified by much of what we did do um that just makes me so happy it really does it's just really my greatest hope was that this would bring people joy and make them think and well certainly has for me yep you've succeeded (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad i really am i'm just so glad it's just yeah it's it's been a 
a fantastic experience and I'm I'm excited about starting all over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you say anything at all about that first uh, writers meeting? Or I'm assuming, no, I mean, no specifics, but like, I don't know, just general vibes. <laughs> yeah. We, so we, yeah, we've been, we've been work. We worked last week. Uh, it's a great group uh, who will probably be introduced at some point. Uh, really fun group. Really great to see Rick and Becky again. It's exciting. It's really fun to be talking about it all again. I just I kind of missed it, like even though we had the show and all of this stuff, but I missed like the process of hashing it out and figuring it out. And so we're back there again, which is great. I can't wait to see what comes out of it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming back and sitting down with us, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank you. Of course. It's always a delight. <laughs> Are we doing are we doing a bead for the back half of the season? Oh. <laughs> oh. Maybe episode 8. You all did. I'm assuming you did one already, right? We did you all one did for a bead. Eight. So I, I yeah. just have to, Okay, so should I I should do a bead first episode 8? You can I I suggested 8. If you have one for 7 or 6 that you like better, feel free. Uh, that's very hard. Um <laughs> bead for episode 6, my daughter being a background actor in it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I will take a whistle because that is one of my favorite jokes in the whole series <laughs> was where was where Percy says that he said that Karen could buy himself a new whistle. <laughs> That's a Walker's good one. Walker's delivery of that line was so good. <laughs> Walker is brilliant. That kid yep. is amazing on every on every level imaginable. He's wonderful. Thank you all for listening to monster donut thank you daphne for joining us next time yet another special treat i think <laughs> we're just we're just a regular cookie jar over here i guess i don't know which means that you all still have time you everyone still has time to send in questions for our wrap-up episode we're also still doing trials of apollo wrap-up by the way so if you have trials of apollo questions yeah We've gotten, we've, we're still getting a couple of those, but I, that's a good reminder. We still, we're still doing that at some point. Yeah. So if you, if you went back and listened to Trial of Apollo, Trials of Apollo recently and you were like, yeah, I have so many questions. Or if you watched season one and you were like, wow, episode eight felt very Trials of Apollo coded. Because it was. Because it was. Um, or just anything in general in season one made you think of Trials of Apollo or sparked some new questions in your brain. Any of those questions can be sent in to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or sent to us on social media. We are at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also just leave it as a comment on Spotify. There's a little like Q&A section if you scroll down on this episode. Mm -hmm. Also on our social media, we have our link tree, uh, which is where you can find links to our merch shop as well as our Patreon. And uh, we also want to send a huge thank you to our patrons. RK, Window Wells, Emily Ann Bonnie, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya, Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Rina Avila Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Lebo, Chief and Plays, Robert Gamer, Kels, Kari, Leila Hussein, Mason Bowman, Casey Cassidy, Evelyn Zamudio, Kelsey Young, and Busy Cat. Thank you all. You're all wonderful people. 
I just keep hearing the the the, the Magnus Archives one. Thank you all. Really appreciate your support. <laughs> that was a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> but up there, we've got some sneak peeks at some of the art that I've been working on post season one. We've got um, some of these episodes have been going up early on Patreon too. And we've also got all of the bonus content over there, like our predictions episode, and we're going to have our spoiler episode, and the reaction videos from season one, and what else? Other random stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who has already joined us over there, and if you would like to find out more, you can click the link in our link tree. Also stay tuned, after we finish our Trials of Apollo wrap-up, we are going to be reading The Sun and the Star, if you want to get started reading ahead for that one yeah i still have not read it and i will be returning to it i i'm so excited to read it because i want to listen to that episode of (laughs) (laughs) if you have read it and you want to listen to phoebe's live reaction to it um i can't tell you if it's good or not but it probably is knowing phoebe i can tell you it's like the best episode that we've ever done (laughs) wow the only one i'm not in (laughs) no i mean it's it's fun. It's just me reacting to the book in in real time and then uh, saying my my unfiltered thoughts on it at the end. <laughs> and so this upcoming episode will be me giving real analytical thoughts instead of me just sitting there trying to process what I just read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all. Thank you all for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.